and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. This is the second lesson in this Discipleship University classroom, a part of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and class teacher Doug Brady is doing a series titled False Teachings and the Doctrines of Demons. This is a series that uncovers just a few of the many articles, books, and pulpit thinking that is dragging down the church with the man-made explanations of Scripture. We are learning that there are New Age thinkers that are infiltrating our churches and making God and Jesus look foolish. Today's lesson covers the very popular book and devotional called Jesus Calling, and the title of the lesson this week is Is Jesus Really Calling? This class is part of the Discipleship University, which is an outreach of the historic First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, where many thousands of people come on Sunday evenings to attend one of the many classes that are provided. The teachers are very carefully chosen and are adept at what the Bible really says. Our teacher, Doug Brady, is one of those teachers. Well, I see that Doug is now ready to begin the lesson, so let's go into the classroom of Discipleship University, a part of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Experience now is the new authority. Uh, If you allow uh, experience to control, then you'll fit in fine with the New Age movement. It's essentially monism, which is the belief that all is uh, one and one is all, that God is in everything. And as a result, this movement is about spiritualism and communicating to the spiritual world. Now, do we as believers believe that there's a spiritual world out there? Yes, we do. And do we believe that there is just like, I'm going to see if that board works in just a minute. Just like, oh, let me let me draw this so you can see my concept here. I've used whiteboard in a while. I hope I remember how to do it. Every person has an inner man, a soul. And that soul comprises several things. You will find his emotions. And I'm not against emotions. In fact, I love emotions. Probably sometimes too much when I'm coming down south on Central. But it also has intellect. It also has volition. Now, this person is encased on this side, which is, of course, the left side, with his physical. Uh, abilities and these physical abilities communicate with the physical world what do you have you have sight you have hearing you have taste you have touch 
and you had a smell. Uh, but most of us don't realize we have another side, a spiritual side. And that spirit has spiritual senses. It has spiritual sight, spiritual hearing, spiritual taste in a manner of speaking, spiritual touch, and spiritual smell. Now, some of you may doubt that kind of concept, but let me give you some examples. Do you remember the story of Elisha? He's still in bed, but his servant Gehazi goes out the front door and he sees all these Armenian chariots around him, Assyrian chariots, and they're there, and they're there for him. And he says, Elijah, you better, Elisha, you better get out here. He comes down, he takes a look, looks at his servant and says, Lord, would you please open his eyes? Now he didn't say, would you open our eyes? Because Elisha was already seen, because his spiritual eyes were so in tune with God. But God answered that prayer. He opened the servant's eyes and he could see the armies of the Lord surrounding, instead of being surrounded by the Syrians, uh, the Syrians were surrounded by this angelic horde, and they, uh, he said, what do you want us to do? He said, blind them all, and they blinded them. The angelic host blinded these warriors, and then he led them over to Jerusalem. Now, look at sense, for example. In the story of Elijah, when he was on Mount Carmel, does anybody know when he was on Mount Carmel what the weather was like there on Mount Carmel? Anybody know? Dry. Dry. What was the condition of the heavens, the sky at the time? Clear. Clear. Blue. Not a cloud in sight. You remember Elisha goes up on the mountain and starts looking for, Elijah does, and looking for a cloud. He doesn't see anything for a while. Okay? But after he'd killed all the prophets and prophecies, prophetesses, he goes over to the king, sidles up to him, and he says, You better eat lunch real quick, your majesty, because I hear the sound of a mighty rainfall. Now, I am certain that that king, upon hearing that, looks up in the sky, and all he sees is Israeli blue. That's it. Oh, there's a... Yes, I hear. You see, but he didn't hear it with his ears, his physical ears. He heard it with ears, uh, spiritual ears, that had been entuned by the Holy Spirit to what was going on. Now, I'm not saying that our spiritual senses cannot be communicated with right now. But there is only one person who can communicate with you spiritually, and that is God. Now, you could say three persons, uh, the Trinity, but that's who does the communicating with us. No one else is allowed to do that to a believer. Now... Can you be communicated with by an angelic being? Yes, but they're going to appear to you. It's going to be in our class when we study Daniel. We're going to look at angelology quite a bit, and we will explain how this communication works. But it's physical communication, or it may be in a dream, but it's not this spiritual type of communication. Now, what these people want, New Agers, is to communicate with spirits the kind of Communication you can only have with the Lord God, but they're not having it with the Lord God. They're having it with spirits, and since and God's angels are not allowed to be communicating like that, whose angels do you think it is? Ah, yes. Our old friend, 
<sighs> old friend Satan. And so they want to do that. Now, the New Age movement or the New Age group has several key tenets. Uh, I want to share two of them with you. One is that God is in everything, and that's called pantheism. And that means that God is in everyone. Now, they don't say it as quite like that. But, for example, I heard Nancy Pelosi say, Oh, there's a divine spark in all of us, and we just need to fan it enough to turn it into a flame. You see? In everyone. Well, one day they'll, they'll really see the flames, won't they? But anyway, I shouldn't say things like that. And, yeah, and that experience, together with recent communications, takes precedence over scriptural mandates, according to New Agers. Now, I want you to consider, I got this recorded recollection, or I heard it, of this guy speaking, and I went back and listened to it over again and typed it out. I wanted to get this, and see, this is what you're going to see as this New Age movement is. The preacher was preaching. Now, I'm convinced he's talking, uh, that this preacher he's talking about is Dr. Criswell. Dr. Criswell. The preacher is preaching. He's holding up a Bible. It was open and perched atop his raised hand as if it was a blackbird had landed there. He was saying that the Bible was the sole and ultimate authority of the Christian's life. The sole and ultimate authority? I remember feeling a feeling rising up from a place about two inches below my navel. Now, I think he misjudged. I think it started a little lower than that. Uh, but uh, it was a passionate, determined feeling, and it spread out from the core of me like a current so that my skin vibrated with it. Now, what do you see going on here? Experience, right? Skin vibrated with it. If feelings could be translated into English, this feeling would have roughly been the word no. What is he saying no to? That the Bible is the sole and ultimate authority of the Christian's life. It was the purest inner knowing I had experienced. And it was shouting to me, no, no, no. The ultimate authority of my life was not the Bible. It is not confined between the covers of a book. It is not something written by men and frozen in time. It is not from a source outside myself. My ultimate authority is a divine voice in my own soul. Period. That's what he said. That's a perfect example of what we're talking about. How do you recognize whether someone's in this new age movement? Well, they use certain words and phrases. And if you listen carefully for them, you will see where they're coming from. I should have a list here. I'm going to read out quickly. Christian yoga, cocoons of light, the presence, the silence, sacred space, contemplative prayer. Is there a DU session that we have had in our church where contemplative prayer has been taught? Yes. Along with the sacred rhythms of life. Rhythms. You want to go to a class so you could learn the sacred rhythms of life? <laughs> I don't think so. Channels or channeling is another phrase they use. Co-creating. That's something they really like. Co-creating. What's co-creating? We're going to talk about that. The quantum leap and the universal spirit. Now, a key literary work 
of this New Age movement and its attack on Christianity is a work entitled God Calling. I'm afraid that it is. This book was written by two anonymous listeners. I have found when somebody writes something anonymous, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's very clear. They don't want you to know who wrote it. Why? Because if they, you knew who wrote it, then it may weaken their position of what they're saying. So they want you to know. Or they're trying to hide something from you. Every once in a while, I would get an anonymous letter in my law firm. We just chunk it. Unless we think it's evidence of something. And then we put it in an evidence file. But the fact is, uh, this, was written, this book was written by two anonymous listeners. Now, these listeners will tell us things like, I am at the center of every man's being. Now, if you have a copy of God Calling, then you can go look and look for these phrases. I, meaning I, God, am at the center of every man's being. I who command the universe await the commands of my children, command your Lord. Are the children of God ever to command God Almighty? No. That's the kind of things New Ages are saying because they're bringing us up into a partnership with God. We're all in this together, so to speak. Another quote. Claim big. Really big things now. Remember, nothing is too big. Claim the unclaimable. Claim my power. Or, no, no theology but me. No me. Uh, when man ceased to commune with, God, with his God, simply and naturally, he took refuge in words. Rely less on words. The wonder of it, we were being taught, trained, and encouraged day by day by him personally, when millions of souls had to be content with guidance from the Bible. Remember that truth is many-sided. What is that telling you? There is no truth. you have a question? I just want to say that most people don't want to read the Word of God. They want to read stuff like that. Well, you're right. Stuff like that makes them feel good for some reason. Let me read one more to you. I, God, have called each of my children to a different path, distinctly designed for that one. Do not let anyone convince you that his is the only right way. Well, don't we have a way that Jesus is the way? That is the only right way. Well, why am I supposed to be talking about Jesus calling and I'm talking about God calling? Because Sarah Young, who wrote this book, Jesus Calling, wrote, read first God calling and was inspired by it. In fact, in the preface of her book, she says this, I began reading God Calling, a devotional book written by two anonymous listeners. These women practiced waiting quietly on God's presence, pencils and paper in hand, recording the messages they received from Him. Now, that's in the 2004 version. If you go to the store now you, and get you uh, a Jesus call, you say, Doug was lying to me. That's not anywhere in the preface. Well, it won't be in the preface that you read now because they decide, we've got to take that out. Uh, that's saying too much. So that's not in the modern ones. But... That's one of the reasons I keep, I threaten Julie within an inch of her life. Don't you dare throw this away because I can't get this again. This is something I want to have uh, so that I can use and prove it. So, yes, evidence. The writers of this work claim to have received messages from God 
which they want to share with the rest of the world. That's what they're saying. In other words, we have new revelation. But this brings us to an important question. Is God still sending the church and through it the rest of the world messages which are divinely authoritative? Well, let's look and see what the scripture says. In Deuteronomy 4.2, it says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you. In Deuteronomy 12.32, it says, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do, and you shall not add to, nor take away from it. Proverbs 36 do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. And Revelation 22:18, I testify to everyone who hears the words and prophecies of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. In class today, we talked about a provision of the Bible, a section of the Bible, I believe that a copyist added. I quoted from the Crystal Study Bible and from the uh, Schofield study Bible, where they agree with me. that that's, and, and these were both King James versions of the Bible. It's in most of the Bibles. Some mark it, some don't. Some of you may disagree with me. Mark uh, chapter 16, 9 through 20. Um, now, even if a message comes to one person intended for just that person, we are warned in the Scriptures to be very careful in what we hear. Now, can God give me direction? Yes. But can God does God give me direction that I'm supposed to give to Gary and tell him what to do? No. If he wants to give God, Gary direction, he's going to give it to Gary, not to me. Now that, that concept kind of irritates my wife sometimes. Never. And it's never a time for something new to change what's in the Bible. Now, that warning... It's contained in a number of passages. Uh, let me read to you a few. You'll find that warning in Matthew 24, 3 through 5, where it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. So he's concerned that they'll be misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. He goes on in verse 23 of that chapter. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, will there be people who will be doing or providing signs, wonders, things that are like miraculous. Can Satan do miracles? What would be a good example? Well, I, I was thinking more like in the court of Pharaoh when Moses threw down his uh, staff and it became a snake. And what, what did the other guys do? They threw it down and, and it became. You know, it's interesting in Second Thec Thessalonians... A passage that we studied carefully last time in the fall. He opposes and exalts himself in verse 4. He will be revealed. And the mystery of lawlessness is already at work and, until the Holy Spirit is removed. And 
That is, the one who's coming is in according with the activity of Satan. Well, what is Satan going to be doing? With all power and signs and false wonders. That word signs is the same word used in the Gospel of John to talk about the things that Jesus did, like turning water into wine, uh, walking on the water, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, feeding the 5,000. So that's coming. And that's, that's what's going to... And he, Jesus goes on to say these great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, I have to tell you, in Matthew 24, 23 through 76, we're talking about the tribulation period time. And, and that's what we're looking at. But it goes on to say, Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. Paul, in 2 Corinthians eleven four said this, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus... Preaches another Jesus. What do you do? Another Jesus whom we have not preached. Or you receive a different spirit which you, have, which you have not received or a different gospel. You bear this beautifully. And he's, they went on to say, you'll reject it. They're anathema to be accursed. In 1 Timothy 4.1 it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's where it's coming from. Now, 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We've got to ask this question. Why am I talking about this book, God Calling, if I'm here to talk about Jesus Calling, and this devotional. It was written a number of years ago. Most of us in the church maybe have never heard of it, and certainly you probably don't have a copy of it. The reason why is that this woman, Sarah Young, when she came along, she was given a copy of God Calling and read it ravenously. She became spiritually inspired by reading God Calling. Now, what should we become spiritually inspired by? Bible, not God Calling. Uh, instead of discerning this book to contain new age and occult message, she allowed this work to inspire her to seek her own dictated messages from Jesus, which she's going to provide devotionals to us from. In fact, she calls God Calling a treasure. As she followed the principles in this book, God Calling, she began to receive messages from Jesus. Also, just as the listeners had before her, now, she says Jesus. If you look in the notes, Jesus is, of course, in quotation marks because it's not from Jesus. And then, after receiving these messages, felt compared to share them with us. First, by way of a devotional book called Jesus Calling. And then, and this is what gets to me maybe more than anything, then by way of a Bible containing her messages as scriptural notes called the Jesus Calling Devotional Bible. So you should interpret the Bible according to what this person who is giving messages to Sarah Young has said to her. So why is this concerning? What does Jesus Calling, this, this book, teach us to do? She urges us to be still and to allow ourselves to become channels for supernatural communication. Be still and allow ourselves to become channels for supernatural communication. Now, 
For the uninitiated, you could say to them, that's not scripturally right. Oh, yes, it is. You haven't read the Psalms. Be still and know that I am God. You ever heard that? Well, you say it, be still and know that I am God. It sounds kind of like what she's talking about. Be quiet. Open your mind and just listen. And then you can know that he's really God. I had a niece who moved, married a guy and moved to California. She sent me this little plaque uh, as a Christmas present, uh, a little wooden plaque this long. Be still and know that I'm God. And I'd heard that before. thought, well, that's scripture. And I put it up in my bathroom to look at. Kept it there for a while until I found out where that really was going. We're going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to let you determine whether she has it downright or not. The problem with being still and allow ourselves to become channels for supernatural is not what God tells us to do. Empty silence allows deceptive spirits to establish contact with those who are naive and undiscerning listeners. He wants you, Satan wants you to empty your mind. That gives them the easiest access. God never tells you to empty your mind. Never. To be still, open and receptive is an ideal state of mind for deceptive spirits to inject ungodly thoughts and understandings into our minds. Now we're going to talk more about that, but let's just make it very clear. Does God ever tell you to meditate? Well, absolutely. Meditation is something that's very important to Him. To meditate, are you supposed to empty your mind? No. In fact, that's Eastern mysticism. Emptying your mind. Focusing on a tree. You know, or who knows what. What does the scripture say you should do with your mind when you're going to meditate? Fill it with God's word. On the word. That's what we're supposed to meditate on and that's all. And you've got to look at it that way. That brings two questions to the forefront of our discussion. Does Siri Young really want to, us to open ourselves up like that and become receptive to whatever may come? That's the first question. And does she misdirect Stricture to teach New Age spirit communication when she says, you know, be still and know that I am God? Let's answer the second question first because it's going to be the clearest. Let's look at this passage just a second. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored uh, throughout the world. And that's the, the King James version of this. That's where I first learned it. Somebody had me memorize it. And it's not wrong to memorize it. But the part in bold is what she constantly quotes. She didn't really quote the rest of it. She just quotes that part, be still and know that I am God. She teaches that we ought to find a place where we can be still. We can open our minds after they have been, and after we've cleared them, to listen what Jesus tells us. Now, is that verse talking about Jesus telling us something? No. She says it speaks of peace, tranquility, and communion with God. Now, it seems to me, this verb, both in the English, be still, both in the English and in the Greek, is imperative. It's a command. And that's, she would agree with that. Yes, this is what God is commanding you to do. Well, let's look at the word in Hebrew and see what this word really says uh, about being still. Uh, I was going to put the New American Standard up there because they don't translate it, be still. It will read this way. Cease striving and know that I am God. 
Cease striving. The word here is rafa. Now, if you're looking at your notes, you will see the lexicon definition for rafa. And let me tell you, there's something in the Hebrew that you need to know when you're looking at a lexicon. If you're looking at a verb, a Hebrew verb. Every Hebrew verb, you know how many letters it has in its base form? Three. Three letters. All consonants. You change those by putting them in a different verb stem. Now let me give you the example that my Hebrew professor, a guy named Roy Blizzard, down at the University of Texas, uh, Roy Blizzard gave me, he said, if you say, I dropped the glass, or you're talking about the glass leaving your hand, going down and hitting the ground. If you put it in call stem, the general stem, it's, I dropped the glass. If you take that same verb, and instead of call, you put it in PL, it would mean I smashed the glass. It's something you do intentionally and intensively. All right? Those two things. All right? Good. We got it up there. You see, the general meaning to sink, be disheartened, but it's not call. It's not PL. It's not nephil. Oh, but it is hephil. That's what it is. It's not hephil. So you come down here to hephil stem. What does that mean? To let drop, to abandon, to refrain or forsake. That doesn't mean to be still, does it? That's, that's not what the word means. It means instead to refrain or forsake. Well, what she's done is she's just taking this right out of context. And unfortunately, she was reading a version of the Bible that didn't have that word translated properly. So, let's look at it in full context. So, the nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. Now, here's the first thing we want to ask ourselves. Is he talking about believers? His people? No. He's talking about the world. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies is here. Armies are here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. And then there's this word interludes, Selah. Come see the glorious works of the Lord. See how He brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still? No. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is among us, and the God of Israel is our fortress. Now, is he talking about sitting still and opening up your mind and letting something channel into that? No, he's talking to the world and telling them, you need to cease striving with me, cease fighting me, because I'm going to destroy you otherwise. And those who continue, do you see what is being done here and how you say, well, gee, Doug, you look at it in context, it doesn't mean anything like she says. If you look up the definition of that word, even somebody that doesn't know Hebrew can look in a Strong's Concordance and find that and see what it means and, and where that Hebrew word came from. And yet, how many people in our country have been fooled by this? I think the number is millions. Millions. You go into any Christian bookstore, one of the most prominent displays you will find 
is the Jesus Calling series and the Jesus Calling devotional Bible and bigger uh, Jesus Calling so you can write, uh, have a handy place to write notes of what God has been channeling into your mind while you're going through this devotional. I want you to look at something and I want you to see, we're looking here at this, at this idea of how God is going to deal with the nations. In Psalm 1, one of my favorite passages in the book of Psalm. Yes? Real quick, do we know why the KJV men would have used, do we have any idea? You're not going to like it if I tell you. One, when the, the Puritans wanted a new translation, and they were a part of the of English church. And, but there were other groups that didn't agree with the Puritans. Puritans wanted a pure translation along with pure doctrine. And they decided to translate authorized King James Version. One of the reasons they also wanted that was to, because they didn't like the versions coming out of Rome. But King James selected uh, like 60 translation teams, 60 translators. being tra But he had rules for picking them. They had to believe in the arch hierarchy of the church and all these other rules. And so translations are skewed because of the a priori assumptions he demanded that the translators have. If you were translating that would go outside those a priori assumptions, then you'd be eliminated and replaced. You see, our modern versions now, I'm not saying there's not any mistakes in modern versions. If you've heard me in my class, I, I point them out all the time when I think there's a mistake. But the modern versions now, for the most part, and I'm saying that the general ones, like say New American Standard, uh, you talk about some of them, you got the nearly inspired version, I, that's not going to work for me. Uh, the message, not going to work. Let me tell you how some things work. A woman called me this week, she said, I'm going to give this guy a Bible, and I think I'm going to give him the message, and can you recommend a concordance I could give him too? And I said, well, I, if you're just going to need a concordance, I would use Strong's. It has a lot of... Don't give him the message. Why not? Well, it's a paraphrase. Mm -hmm. And most, it's not a translation. And most of it... Was a, and they said, no, I think I, he needs this so he can understand things easily. I said, you want him to understand what's wrong? No, but I think... I said, let me tell you. If my preacher said, I'm going to start preaching out of the message, I would leave that church. Yeah, okay. But I'm going to get him the message anyway. I could tell... I could tell what she was, she just said, well, okay. But, you know, she would have asked, well, what do you think you should give him? If she wasn't going to, but she wanted to give him that. But that's the way people are sometimes. And, and, and they do that. In, in Psalm 110, 1 and 2, the Lord says to my Lord, that is, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, one of the cool things, I think, where is Jesus principally right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. What is He doing? He's seated. Seated. But he's, His position is that He is seated there next to the Father. When Stephen sees Him as He's dying and He looks up into heaven after, as He's being stoned, what position is Jesus doing? He's standing. Why? Because He is the legal representative of Stephen, and he is standing up objecting to what's going on down there. That means there's times maybe he's standing up objecting about what's happening to you. 
I like that. I like having a, a lawyer who's on the right hand of the Father. Yep. My thinking on it, uh, but that's what I think. And so he says, until I make your enemies your footstool, and the Lord stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. What is God saying? He's saying, I am going to take down the world and I'm going to make them your footstool. Now, some people say that's kind of harsh. That's the way God deals with sin, right? And rebellion. So this passage doesn't mean anything close to what Miss Young says it means. God's not speaking to the believer here. He's speaking to his enemies. They must listen to him. They'll be forced to recognize that he is God. He will be exalted among the peoples of the world and not merely his own people. This passage is about judgment and the call for stillness, quote unquote, is not as a preparation for worship, but for impending judgment or to cease striving in your rebellion. Now this passage is not one that guides us into contemplative prayer or to be a channel for new communication, to open up ourselves. Miss Young seriously misinterprets uh, this portion of this verse. So let's go back to the first question we asked ourselves. Does Sarah Young really want us to open ourselves up like that, being receptive to whatever may come? Does she? Now, I have the pages, and you will see um, Jesus calling, and I'm going to quote from you. I've been telling you, this is telling you to do things you shouldn't do. Well, what? Give me some examples. I'm glad you asked. Number one, come to me with your defenses down. Relax and feel the relief of being totally open and authentic with me. Does God ever want us to have our defenses down? Or does he say, test every spirit? Page 306, it says that. If you don't believe, it says that you can come up and look afterwards. No, she doesn't believe in testing spirits. She'll take whatever she can get. Plus the money that you're spending to buy that. Make your mind like a still pool. Ready to receive whatever thought I drop into it. Now, if you make your mind as a steady pool, or still pool, will something be dropped into it? Probably yes. But not something from Jesus. Something bad will be dropped into it. I'm not going to say what I would say if we were just together in a small room. Number three. Sit quietly in my presence, letting my thoughts reprogram your thinking. Reprogram your thinking. Is anything other than the scriptures supposed to uh, reprogram us? No, the scriptures and the scripture alone. Not anything that's coming down in as we're opening channels for someone to drop something into our mind. In, on page 161, he says, let me control your mind. Who is the me? Well, you know, I'm coming to talk to you. If you'll just be still and know that I'm God. You see, in that misquote, be still and know that I'm God, they want you to think that someone who's not God is God. You see how she's using that? She may not realize that, but it doesn't matter. You know, I was growing up, we would say things like, that's a communist dupe. Not that he was a communist, but he's just being used by them. In the same way, this is a satanic dupe. She may not really know, but she's just being used. Number five, the world has changed in Norton. Now, this is supposed to be from Jesus to her. 
The world has changed enormously since I first gave the command to be still and know that I am God. However, this timeless truth is essential for the well-being of your soul. As dew refreshes water, a grass and flowers during the stillness of the night, so my presence revitalizes you as you sit quietly with me. Did that passage talk about sitting quietly and being refreshed? No. What are we talking about when we're talking about meditation? Scriptural meditation teaches us something vastly different. Let's look at several verses from it. In Psalm 119.48, David writes, And I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Does David say, well, I'm emptying my mind and letting you drop into it, God, whatever you want? No. His commands and his statutes. In Psalm 1, verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of his Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Again, in Psalm 119.99, he says, I have more insight than all my teachers. Why does David have more insight than all his teachers? For your testimonies are my meditation. That's what's coming in. Psalm 143.5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings and I muse on the works of your hands. Now, it's interesting. Those passages, although inspired scripture, are a person explaining what his position is that God has told him. Now let's look at an instruction directly from God to a fellow named Joshua. Found in the book under his name, chapter 1, verse 8. God says to him, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, if you're meditating on it day and night, do you have time to empty your mind and let channels communicate to you something? No. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you shall, may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Now, if you're going to test Sarah Young's Jesus, by what he says, consider these concepts. Co-creating with Jesus. This is something that she pushes strongly and says that Jesus has told her about and explained to her. The idea of co-creation involves a man recognizing that he is God. A man recognizing that he is God? And then acting as God to co-create a positive future. Now, she can't really say that, can she? She wouldn't really. On page 362, this is a very practical way of collaborating with me. And the me is supposed to be Jesus. I, the creator of the universe, have deigned to co-create with you. That's what she says Jesus told her. And you should know that. Then she wants to say, you need to learn to take the quantum leap. Take the quantum leap, what does that mean? It involves a paradigm shift that occurs when we awaken and accept the fact that we are all one with God. Now, you see that? That's monism again. We're all one. A pantheism. We're all, God is in all of us. Except the fact we're all one in God because God is in all of us. So on three, page 285 she says, When you make the quantum leap into eternity, you will find me waiting for you in heaven. I'm not making a quantum leap into eternity. Uh, that sounds like somebody dying to me and going to hell. But Jesus coming back for me. I'm not making a leap. 
Now, you need to understand that you really need to gravitate into the cocoon of light. Cocoon of light. Since this movement is convinced that we are all one because we're all gods, they describe us as a chrysalis. Now, let's make sure we understand terms. What does it mean, a chrysalis? You know, when the worm bends that cocoon with themselves inside, they start to change. And it's called metamorphosis. And they become a butterfly. But inside that cocoon, they are the chrysalis. And then when they emerge out, they are the butterfly. So that's what it means, the chrysalis. They de describe us as a chrysalis, which has been immersed in a cocoon of light from which we will emerge to a complete oneness with God. Oneness with God? That reminds me of something I heard in chapter 3 of Genesis. If you eat of this, of this, uh, if you eat of this fruit, you become just like God, knowing good from evil. You see, so uh, that that's what is going on here in this cocoon of light uh, that you will emerge complete oneness with God. On page one sixty six, it says, "I am all around you like a cocoon of light." What would the real Jesus say if he were to? Sarah Young would say, be still and listen to him and he'll tell you. I would say no. He's not going to tell you. Because he has already told you. It's in the scriptures. Psalm 138.2 says this. I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. Since God has magnified his word in accordance with his name... His word instructs us. We need to understand that. The New King James says, For you have magnified your word above all your name. I don't know what the King James says, whether it says above. But above is not the correct. It's in accordance with your name. All means upon or over. And the concept is we will never experience His presence in any way that is not totally consistent with the truth of Scripture. Never. As a result... We can know that if a voice or a presence or anything else tells us a vision, a dream, something different than what is in God's Word, it is not from God Almighty, it is from Satan. Well, couldn't it be from something else? No, anything that's not God is Satan. You're either for me or you're against me. That's the promise. That's the way it is. And so we need to come to understanding that. Now, some people would ask the question, well, couldn't it be that that was then, but then not now? That God's going to deal with us differently. Consider what Matthew 24, 35 says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Never pass away. Parakoimai. Parakoimai is the Greek word there. And it means to pass away or to perish. That'll never happen. It's not going to happen. We must understand that if we choose to put God's experience or God's presence above His Word. Let me read, say that again. If we choose to put experiencing God's presence, quote unquote, above His words, we're leaving ourselves open and vulnerable to a counterfeit presence. That's what we are doing. 
We should not surprise us that a counterfeit presence will promote experience over Scripture. Find the truth in the Word of God and in the Word of God only. Psalm 119.5, it says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. You want direction? Go to the Scripture. But the voice in Jesus calling said, Now listen to how they talk about this verse. Let me read to you this verse again. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus calling says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and my presence is a light to your path. That's on page uh, 233. It goes on to say, Let the light of my presence soak into you as you focus your thoughts on me and thus I will equip you to face whatever the day brings. But then the real Jesus warned us by saying in Luke 11.35, Then watch out for the light in you is not darkness. That's what he's saying. Maybe the last word that we should take away from this study is the admonition that Paul gave to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now let me tell you what is being described there. But I'm going to put it in modern terms. It's the young man who in high school, not in many schools, but gets a chance in his high school to take wood shop. And he finds he really likes taking working with wood. And so he chooses to go to a trade school that teaches him how to work with wood. You know, Daniel is an unbelievable woodworker. He can make things. Now, I'm going to brag, but it's not on me. I have two matching set of cutting boards that are the most beautiful cutting boards you ever see. Probably one of them's worth $500 and one of them's worth $400. I didn't have to pay that, but that's probably what they're worth. And they hold up no matter what happens. I've had them get burned and you just rub that burn out and it's amazing uh, how it disappears and things. But he knows the value of a sharp chisel and he can use a chisel in his hand. He knows how to use the router perfectly. All of these things he's learned. Now, did it just come to you, Daniel, all of a sudden? Or did this something you had to learn over a long period of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you, you work hard. And you've got to, the longer you do it, the better you become. The more skilled with the tools that you have. And the more skilled to be able to see it with your eye. That's what this verse is talking about. This isn't talking about, oh, I'm going to dedicate a month to read the whole Bible and then I'm there. I'm being diligent and I can rightly divide the word of truth now. No. It's talking about spending the time to become a skilled craftsman. Now, some people will say that I was rather excessive about it because I chose my university at the time, not the one that would help me get into law school the best, but the one where I could study Koine Greek and Hebrew in addition to the classes I thought it would best help me, the major I thought would best help me to get in law school, which was history. I had a mother who wanted me to learn everything I could about being a Bible teacher and she'd take me to hear some of the best Bible teachers that she thought were around as I was growing up. You know, people like Howard Hendricks and other people like that. 
uh, uh, Bill McRae. And what this is about is doing that. Now you can say, well, Doug, that started when you were young, and so I'm not anywhere near that. I need to... Does that mean that you can't study? You see, when I went to undergraduate school and I was taking Koine Greek, it was hard. Now, I've got a computer program where I can point at that word. Let's say in the Hebrew, it will tell me the exact word that that verb was. And then it'll tell me that it's in Hitpel and not in Kal. And it will tell me that it's imperative. And it will tell me that it's second person plural. And it will tell me all these things. And if you know English grammar, then you know Hebrew grammar, basically. Because the computer tells you all these things. There are so many helps and guides now, but you have to say, I'm going to work, and I'm going to discover. But, but this is what you need to be about. Accurately handling the word of truth. Now, does he say here, I want those who I've given the gift of teacher to, to be diligent to present yourself approved as God. No, that's not what he says. This is to everybody who's a believer. Did you ever have a mentor or a teachers that help you learn certain skills? Yeah. Who's your real mentor and teacher? The Holy Spirit. Can you get somebody better than that? He's the one who wrote the book. Well, we're kind of at the end. But I wanted to impress on you the way that you look, let me put it this way. If you were to join the Secret Service, one of the areas that you might go into working in the Secret Service is their counterfeit division. Do you know how they teach you to recognize counterfeit currency? They get you to learn the right thing. You study intently what a real 20 looks like, what a real 100 looks like, so that when you come across a fake, it's easy to say, well, it doesn't have this. You see, it's much easier to say it doesn't have the right things than to figure out, well, it's got something wrong on it. It doesn't have the, you learn the real thing in the same way. That's what we need to be about. Then we can see when she starts saying these things to us, oh, you need to envelop yourself in this cocoon of light. Well, that sounds good. I might like to be in a cocoon of light. Oh, no. Uh, Satan's not going to trick me to going in there. But you see where we're going on this. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could be here tonight. I thank you for getting me through it tonight. I pray, Father, that people understand that there was a lot of prayer going into this uh, lesson tonight. And that I'm no super scholar. But I just try to ask you to show me what it is you want me to share with my friends here. And I pray, Father, as... We look at more things, more difficult things, that you will guide me and help me uh, in being prepared, being able to share in a way that's easily understandable with my friends and neighbors here exactly what's going on. Satan is trying to undermine our church in a poison. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>